I think it's been remarkable how Ukraine has managed to keep together in the face of this invasion. A lot of the credit's been given to the president, uh, Vladimir Zelensky, but clearly there was a plan in place and that plan has worked to resist for the time being. And it has been something to watch. Few Canadians know Ukraine and what goes on behind the scenes, as well as my next guest, Roman Washchuk served as ambassador in Kiev for Canada from 2014 to 2019. He's now business ombudsman of Ukraine. We spoke to him last week when war was still just a threat. Now it's a reality. So we asked him to come back on and speak to us again. Roman, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for the opportunity again. I mean, since we last spoke, we've seen something unfold that I don't think many of us ever fully expected to see happen. Uh, What has been your reaction just to the first five days of of this attack? I like to think of myself as a kind of prudent pessimist. And so I was warning people, uh, I'm warning your listeners, but also others in, in Ukraine before that, that this might get ugly, but that it would get this ugly and that Putin would throw ballistic missiles uh, at cities. Uh, Yeah, I wasn't counting on that. I mean, I know that through many years, you had often sounded the alarm about what Ukraine needed to defend itself. What have you made of the last of the diplomatic reaction the last five days? Everybody's been playing cash up, uh, but successfully for a change. The Ukrainians were not terribly well prepared for this, but they've come together amazingly, largely in a kind of horizontal way at the uh, community and civic level, but also retaining their vertical military command capabilities. Uh, And uh, European countries, Canada, the US, have also reacted remarkably quickly. I think people have been shocked. People have been emotionally affected. European Union is normally a very bureaucratic, clunky, slow-moving kind of institution, but they've done things within a day or two that would have taken you know, years or decades before, um, partly because from what I understand, uh, leaders were influenced by a very emotional uh, tele or video conference with President Zelensky a couple of days ago. Of all the things that you've seen, knowing the diplomacy of this the way you do, knowing how it works behind the scenes, which of these developments have you found to be the most um, pleasantly surprising? I'd say two things. Uh, One is the ease on Russian central bank reserves. Everybody was talking about, you know, will will Russia get uh, banned from the international SWIFT system, uh, which would make it very difficult wouldn't really stop circulation of money, whereas uh, central banks and finance ministers went for the big freeze. And from what I understand, our very own finance minister, Christopher Freeland, was instrumental in uh, setting that up with uh, her counterparts among finance ministers. So that's one thing. Uh, the other one is uh, the announcement from the European Union that they'd be providing $450 million in military aid, including fighter jet aircraft, to Ukraine within a matter of days. Uh, the European Union has never done anything big on defense before. And that they would go from that to offering fighter jets you know, it is, is pretty amazing. I think I've been among the people saying that something should be done to protect Ukraine's skies. uh, And there's naturally reluctance to go for a NATO-imposed or NATO-influenced no-fly zone. 
because of the conflict potential. But I think the Europeans may have found one way of addressing that by giving the Ukrainians former Soviet aircraft that, that East European EU members run uh, for free, basically, uh, aircraft they already know, very similar to the ones they already fly, that they can put into service immediately. I was going to say, there's been a lot of talk about a no-fly zone that has been brought up a lot, but but it looks from the outside to be something that just isn't, the risks are so high that it just isn't yeah. feasible. True. And so I think what we're seeing are these sort of two indirect forms of interve- intervention. One is armed supplies. And here, uh, even Finland today has offered arms, uh, you know, which is a neutral country. And you'll remember we had a, a couple of weeks ago, big debates on should Ukraine become Finlandized, uh, be like Finland, be neutral, be friendly with Russia? Well, not so friendly anymore, and providing weapons to Ukraine. So that uh, is an indication of just how appalled and horrified countries are. Uh, Switzerland today imposed EU sanctions on, on Russia, even though it's always been neutral, especially in financial matters because of its role as an international kind of uh, secret banking uh, hub. So, you know, Germany, which has uh, been a largely uh, pacifist country for obvious reasons for the past 80 years, uh, said that it was it would almost double its defense spending and it's supplying weapons to Ukraine now. So policies that have stood for decades have just been turned around in the course of five days. Even Singapore, I saw, who haven't imposed sanctions on anyone, I think, since the late 70s, imposed sanctions today on Russia. Uh, what have you made? There were negotiations today, uh, I gather, between Ukraine and Russia. Yes. What What do you make of that? And is there any hope there of a breakthrough, do you think, even in the coming days? Yeah, I'm skeptical. Um, so is President Zelensky. Um, the they did manage to spend seven hours in each other's company. So there may be something to be said for that. Uh, but while the Russian delegation coming to this border between Ukraine and Belarus said they were coming with no preconditions, at the same time, President Putin was saying to President Macron, well, here are my three preconditions. So, uh, you know, given the past history, which is that uh it may have been happening while uh, we were doing one of our last inter- interviews that while President Macron thought he was persuading Putin not to invade and Putin was making these vague promises that he might not, all the preparations and all the machinery was already clanking away. And I think his declaration of war speech had already been recorded. So uh, not a very trustworthy character, uh, Mr. Putin. What did you make uh, just diplomatically? Because I think a lot of people were shocked by by the the pointedness of of Putin's uh, move to put nuclear uh, forces on 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 alert, so to speak. But it's not quite clear what was announced. What do you read into that? He's basically saying, "Give me a free hand. I you know I will do to these Ukrainians whatever I want, and if you get in the way too much, you'll be really sorry." Uh, and he's not afraid to kind of go go into Doctor Strangelove territory uh, to do it. That's why I'm coming to believe that only an internal Russian move to uh, take his finger off the button is ultimately going to resolve this crisis. And that's why the strict, super strict 
financial sanctions, which have now also hit oligarchs. I think France is now planning to confiscate their yachts and their uh, summer homes. Even, I mean, even Monaco uh, has now sanctioned them. Uh, so all these, the most powerful people in Russia, at least economically powerful, are suddenly not able to enjoy anything of what they've accumulated. And that might get them to thinking about whether they really want to be ruled by President Putin anymore. Now, he, he probably thinks he can still scare them into submission, but they, they may start thinking. I'm back with former Canadian ambassador to Ukraine, Roman Westchuk, and the current business ombudsman of Ukraine. It seems remarkable when we look at how um, infrastructure so quickly falls apart in some areas due to natural disaster and so on. From afar, it seems remarkable how Ukraine has managed to withstand um, at least if the, the infrastructure of Ukraine the, the, over the first five days of this attack, of this war. How has Ukraine been able to continue to function as a state given it's under attack? Uh, it has actually I think, surprised itself at how well it survived. Uh, for one thing, uh, its air defenses were not immediately taken out in the barrage on the first night. And uh, one of the stories I've read says that uh, it's partly because the Soviets were using old maps in in doing their bombing. Uh, so that, in a way, kind of it, it's reveals something. Is, is basically if you're uh, and I may have actually used the word Soviet. So uh, the Russians kind of got stuck somewhere in 1989 or 91 in their planning, in thinking about Ukraine. And that's also true, obviously, in many other respects. So, and the Ukrainians had learned to move their equipment around more, and so it didn't get hit. Um, there's a range of other uh, things like that. Uh, Ukrainians are very tech-savvy. Uh, Russian government websites have been taken down over the past five days with regularity. Uh, there's a kind of a international hacktivist army that's working on that to assist the Ukrainians. And Belarus has also been hit. I think Belarusian railways had all their internal systems down yesterday. Um, so they've been, uh, they've been adaptable. And you know, frankly, some of that is partly the result of training they've received over the last six, seven years from Canada, the US, Poland, Lithuania, uh, sort of the, the training partners of the Ukrainian armed forces and security forces. I was going to ask you about that because clearly this is not the same military that we saw in 2014. No, it's uh, first battle-hardened. Now, in, in what was a fairly stationary war, uh, a trench war in the East for seven years, You've had 450,000 people go through that army uh, in those years, and they've all got battle experience. The Russians, for all that they have more money and way more equipment, but they haven't had the same wide-ranging combat experience uh, as, uh, as the Ukrainians. So we're seeing that with the exception of some elite forces, but a lot of the regular Russian forces, A, don't really know why they're there. They were told they were going on exercises and then they were told we're going from there to a peacekeeping mission and suddenly they're in the middle of a firefight with people throwing Molotov, civilians throwing Molotov cocktails at them. And and when they get captured, they're they're either really confused or they're pretending to be really confused Mm -hmm. as to why they're there. 
What have you made of the of the performance of the commander in chief? Because I know there was a lot of criticism of Vladimir Zelensky in the lead up to this yep. to this war. And you've met him, you know him. Yep. What is your assessment of, of, of what has happened and and just how important it's been for Ukraine to have that voice of of, of unity at the top? Well, I think this is a, a case of that saying, cometh the hour, cometh the man. I'm not sure Zelensky himself would have foreseen what's happened to him. He's kind of almost instantly grown into the role. If anything, I may have been concerned initially at how would he react to the shock of something that a lot of people around him didn't believe was would be real actually happening. But he has become kind of like a man of steel uh, in terms of uh, morale, in terms of messaging, um, quite remarkable. And as I say, uh, his impact uh, has been multiplied by the way it's been it's been perceived internationally. Certainly, when one looks at the information war, if and there is one going on, certainly Ukraine has been winning this information war since day one, which is something the Russians mightn't be used to, other than within Russia, perhaps, but something that Russia would not necessarily be used to. And it seems to have had a huge uh, impact on the international reaction to what's happened. Yeah, I think it's true because... Uh, Ukrainian information is basically free information. It's, it's freewheeling. It's, uh, you've got uh, decentralized. You've got hundreds, if not thousands of people writing stuff, inventing memes, uh, circulating black humor. Uh, and, and then these incidents like the, the lady with the sunflower seeds walking up to the Russian soldiers saying, you know, giving him, putting sunflower seeds in his pocket saying, I hope they grow once you're in the soil. You know, lines like that. Uh, well, and, and then Zelensky as well, uh, when he was talking to the uh, EU leaders and saying, you know, I was, I was offered uh, to be exfiltrated by the Americans, but my view is I don't want to ride, I need ammunition. These are memorable things uh, to have said. I guess um, as a last question, former ambassador, when you look at what could happen though, Russia still has a massive military they're slow, but they're big. Where do you see this going from here? And, and, and can the worst be prevented, worse than we've already seen? I think we're in a kind of race against time. Uh, yes, the Russians can bring much more to bear in terms of especially destructive firepower. They've discovered that uh, much of their personnel isn't motivated, but uh, you know, thermobaric missiles or ballistic uh, conventional missiles don't need motivation. They just blow up. Uh, where you where you throw them. On the other hand, uh, the uh, financial sa- sanctions are almost like ballistic missiles in how they're affecting the ruble and uh, and just Russia's ability to do business and how they're motivating key constituencies to say, wait a minute, we never signed up for this. Um, Putin, I think, is isolated and frankly slightly off his rocker. Uh, so who does he manage to escalate first to the extent where the destruction becomes just apocalyptically horrible, more horrible than even than it is today? Or uh, does the economic pressure uh, accelerate and uh, accentuate so quickly that uh, his inner circle says, Vlad, maybe you need to look for new opportunities? Roman Wachtuck? former Canadian ambassador to Ukraine, current business ombudsman of Ukraine. Thank you so much for your time tonight. You're very welcome.